What did he say? There's a guy in our quartet Talks like no one I've heard yet He mumbles, mumbles all the time He's got no reason and he's got no What did he say? What did he say? What did he say? What did he say? He said, bring something round, we'll have a ball today. You are listening to the next voice you hear with Juan Yoon. Bonjour. Guten Tag, Konnichiwa, and welcome to The Next Voice You Hear. My name is Juan Yoon, and to the left of me is my right-hand man, Nevin Ryan, also known as Nevsky, Nevstein, Nevmeister, and Nevson, if you're feeling Japanese. Say hello, Nevin. Hello, humans. So today we're going to do things a bit differently um, vis-a-vis our regular show format. And instead of bits and pieces of interviews with Nevin and I interjecting, we're just going to play the whole interview for you and uh, not doing this because, you know, we ran out of time, uh, but because this woman, who we'll introduce in a second, is an absolute uh, brilliant person and leader in her field, and where the conversation was so jam-packed with insight and knowledge, and she is so eloquent and clear that we thought um, cutting the interview would do it uh, injustice, an injustice. So today we're just going to let the whole thing play, it's about half an hour, so uh, we're going to play it now, and uh, hope you enjoy it. See you in half an hour. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a new episode of The Next Voice You Hear. I am really, really thrilled to have our guest, our interviewee. Her name is Janine Benyus. Janine, did I pronounce that correctly? That's right, yeah. Okay. Janine is a science writer, uh, a published author, lecturer, and she describes herself as a biologist at the design table. We're going to talk about what that means. Her book is called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. And um, it was published uh, about 20 years ago, but the world is now catching up to Janine's work. And I'm thrilled to have her on our show and to talk about how we can be inspired in many different sectors by the 1.5 billion years of R&D that the natural world has been doing and what we can learn, therefore, from uh, the natural world, from biology. So thank you, Janine, for uh, being on our podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yes. And can you tell us, give us an intro, because most of us uh, are not familiar with the notion of biomimicry. What is biomimicry? Sure. So biomimicry is, innovation inspired by nature is a good catchphrase for it. Um, It's a practice now, it's an innovation practice, whereby people like designers, architects, chemists, the people who make our world are beginning to, as they're about to solve a problem, they ask themselves, what in the natural world has already solved this problem? You know, if you're making... If you're trying to waterproof a tent and you don't want to use Teflon anymore, you might say, what needs to keep its, its feathers or its hair dry, right? And there's mm. lots of organisms that waterproof, right? So biomimicry really is this, this practice of looking to the natural world for designs, for strategies, 
for chemical recipes, for ways of doing the same things that we need to do, and hopefully creating, as a result, more, a more sustainable planet, right? So doing things sustainably is something that the rest of the natural world's been doing for a very long time. And um, biomimicry gives us the opportunity to turn to that incredible library or patent database, if you will, of, of ideas, and then try to emulate those in what we do. And hopefully to figure out how to fit in here. Mm-hmm. And, and what's amazing is um, in the video that we first saw, the, the statement that nature has been doing R&D for 1.5 billion years, you know, anything we have done as human beings is dwarfed by that laboratory. Given the, the, the magnitude of what we have to, to learn from, why did it take us so long to discover this when it was right under our noses all along? There's a really, really good idea. It's actually 3.8 billion years. That's the first blue-greens were here 3.8 billion years ago. That we call, our consulting firm is called Biomimicry 3.8. Um, and that's how long life, life has been here. But why, why did it take us so long? Because, you know, you would imagine, um, and in fact, I did. When I was first conceiving of the book, there wasn't a, there wasn't a field called Biomimicry. I had to sort of make up this name. Um, and I was shocked at that. I thought that, for instance, if you were going to create a solar cell, the first thing you would do is talk to a botanist who understood how leaves work. Because, you know, because it, it seems so obvious. However, it's not. That's really has not how solar cells were, were developed. And that shocked me. And I think, you know, I think it's one of those things where biomimicry is one of these very ancient things that we used to do when we were, you know, earlier hominid times, right? Um, you always looked around and you admired certain organisms in your ecosystem and you, you kind of said, okay, uh, how do you walk on snow without falling through? Well, a snowshoe hare, you know, Native Americans looked at snowshoe hare feet and that's how they developed snowshoes. Um, so I think we used to do it when we were closer to our, uh, and, and more, we admired the organisms in our ecosystems. And then I think we got on the end of a really powerful lever, you know, we petrochemicals and, you know, we, we became very entranced with our own technologies. They're very powerful technologies. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until we started to get these unintended consequences, you know, that we said, um, oh, is there a more sustainable way to live on this planet? And we, we had gotten to the point where we forgot when we were looking at a tree, that you're looking at a set of technologies that are amazing. You know, now when I look at a tree, I see leaves and I see, you know, I see solar cells. I see, I see a water distribution network parallel to none. You know, I see, you know, a solar powered pump going on. You know, it's amazing what's, you know, I see these miracle materials in this chlorophyll turned into wood and cellulose. I mean, all, all manufactured silently in water, out of raw materials that are local. Those all seemed, you know, people were not looking at trees like that. They were looking at it as board feet, you know, timber. They weren't looking at it as technology. And that, and that was the switch. Biomimicry is really a lens switch, right? 
It is a lens switch because I think, you know, we've been in the Western world, certainly there are a couple of concepts that have dominated how we view nature. One is the term natural resources, which simply means it's a pantry, you know, or it's a farm of stuff in raw material that, that right. we're given. Right. Another is the notion that nature is about um, peaceful, achieving a state of serenity or tranquility, etc., which it is, etc., but, it, but almost using nature as a, a therapeutic tool. So there are certain ways exactly. that we've been trained to, to look at nature, and what is amazing about your work is that it treats nature through a very different lens, as you say, like, and, and some of it has started to filter into even pop culture. Like the entire Spider-Man series is based on mm -hmm. the idea, and, and you have it in your book, about how spiders can ha create a waterproof fiber that's five times stronger than steel. And so the entire concept uh, or idea of Spider-Man as a superhero is based on biomimicry, technically speaking. So we have hints and, and clues about that even in our pop culture. So it sounds to me like we have just yeah. started to scratch the surface. What are some of the areas or, or sectors that you're seeing right now where biomimicry is starting to make, um, give us true sort of advancements and inspiration? Sure. Well, you know, it's, um, I sort of focus on what do we need? Um, and we certainly need, for instance, ways to clean and purify or even harvest water. So there's a big area there where we're looking at things like um, Namibian beetles, which are these desert beetles, black little desert beetles that crawl up to the top of a sand dune. They've got bumps on the back of their wing scale. And these bumps are, they have the right confirmation and the right chemistry to, to be a magnet for fog that comes into the, into the deserts every so often. And they grab it 10 times better than our fog catching nets. And so the, the idea there is, well, we can create a surface, even a surface of a building in San Francisco that might be able to gather fog, right? Um, and, and, and of course, you know, for agriculture in really dry places, um, but there's, you know, there's biomimicry everywhere you look, but the things that are, you know, that are coming, I think, um, there's a lot in chemistry. There's a lot in, for instance, additive manufacturing and 3d printing where we're going to be self assembling materials. You know, when you think about a, a ceramic in the ocean, which is basically a shell, think of an abalone inside of the shell and, and that self assembles out of seawater. Uh, at room temperature, that sort of th those sort of technologies are called self-assembly. There's one I think that there's some that are so obvious that I can't believe we haven't done. Um, do you know what structural color is? No. Have you heard of that? No. Yeah. So when we work with inventors, they you know they want to say make the color yellow or something, and they want to get rid of cadmium in the paint, which is a toxin. And we say, well, wait a minute, what do you really want to do? You want to create color. How does nature create color? And nature creates color with pigments, sure, like flowers and all. But the brilliant colors in the natural world, like the morpho butterfly and the hummingbird throat and all those beautiful, bright, iridescent colors, peacock, they're all done with structure, meaning the peacock itself is brown. All the feathers are brown. That's the only color in them. But what happens is they've got these layers 
and they've got certain structures in their feathers, um, fairly common raw material, but it's laid up in such a way that it plays with light and it creates blue. And then a few millimeters over, it creates yellow to your eye and then it creates green to your eye just by how it's laid up. So you can imagine now, like if you were to say, take a car and the last few layers are transparent, but they're layered in such a way to create color. So that, that whole idea of structural color, which is then even tunable, you know, if you move the layers apart, say you have a dial on your wallpaper and you're able to move it apart, right? And create color to the eye. Yeah. So, so the whole idea of like, how are we going to get rid of toxins in paint kind of goes away. <laughs> you know, you're like, well, how are we going to structure the last few layers of our 3D printed part so it creates color? Those are the crazy flips that Amazing. you find in, in the natural world. So elegant. So elegant. What you're saying is that using techniques, let's say, like structural color, we can apply this to all sorts of things, you know, from interior design and architecture to automotive design and other industrial design to um, communication, media, advertising, entertainment, so that we can yeah. have all these sort of colors and tell all these stories, as it were, without introducing toxins. Is that the case? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, and using the same material. So if you think about it, it's really, if you're going to be making something out of a material, why not just structure the plastic in such a way that it creates color to your eye? It's four times brighter. So yeah, it's, it's a new way. Life is, pigments are very expensive to make. And that's why life over 3.8 billion years has learned a different way to do it. If feather is made of of keratin. It's just like your hair or your fingernails, right? So it's there anyway. The question is if you add, or the, or the trick is if you add structure to it. So here's, here's another one that's just structure. Um, and it's, it's a health one. You know, we've got this huge antibacterial crisis, right? With superbugs being formed because we use too many antibiotics. And so they hack an immunity and they get to be superbugs. So we have to find a different way of dealing with bacteria. So you look into the natural world, you say, okay, what in the natural world should be covered with bacteria and isn't? That's how you find, when we're working with our clients, that's how we find the champion adapters in the natural world. We, we, so these scientists found that this Galapagos shark had no bacteria on its surface. Hmm. And it, they looked, they thought it was a chemical, they thought it must be poisoning the bacteria, but it wasn't, it was structure. Again, structure. There was the way its scales are. Um, it's just not a comfortable place for bacteria to land, so they don't. So now, a company called Sharklet out of Colorado. This you should watch this one. Really, um, they're they're making these thin film coatings that they put on hospital railings and doorknobs, and they're starting their you know, steel cases, making their their furniture with the you know their office furniture with the arms have this slight pattern on them you can't see it um and bacteria don't land so it's a whole new it doesn't it doesn't breed for resistance they just don't land you don't kill them when you kill something there's always something left alive right but when you just repel things that doesn't happen so again another huge flip rather than poisoning why not just use structure and there's there's so many of those in biomimicry that's what's really kind of fun about it humbling Yes. As well. It's fascinating because, you know, in our world, in the business world, we talk about, you know, targeted communication, 
We talk about uh, strategic partnerships. And, and recently in a talk, you know, I mentioned to a, a room full of marketers, you know, that advertising and marketing was really the oldest profession in the sense that flowering trees <laughs> or, or flowers, I think that emerged at the end of the Cretaceous era, so it was about 65, 70 million years ago, is a highly sophisticated form of targeted advertising. So the, the flower is meant to attract an audience, a specific audience, with specific cues so that they could uh, have That's a right. value exchange, have a transaction, and then each walk away benefiting from it. So is there things that yeah. we could learn in the business world uh, from the natural world that could make us smarter? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's this whole you know realm of the technical that I've been talking about. But then... There's also all of these incredible ecosystem lessons, systems level lessons, right, that have to do with how do the organisms that are living together in a place, how do they negotiate their um, trade deals and their, their partnerships and what are called in biology mutualisms. Mutualisms are relationships that are mutually beneficial to both partners. So it's not a parasite relationship, right? It's literally, I'm going to give you, say, say, you know, you've got, you've got trees that are, now we know their roots are wrapped in these, in, in these fungal threads. And this fungus basically gives the tree phosphorus. And then the tree gives the fungus carbon, right? It's got this relationship. Um, and actually, it connects all the trees in a forest, we now understand, through something called the wood wide web. So it allows them to exchange. Yeah, I know. It gets more complicated, right? It allows them to exchange nutrients and water and uh, alarm signals. It's really interesting. But anyway, back to the mutualisms. I mean, we're finding out in, in science right now, we thought that for years, for decades and decades, scientists thought that when you looked at a forest out there, you were looking at head-to-head competition. You were looking at, you know, dog eat dog. The trees are spread out in a certain way because they're all competing for water, sun, and nutrients. Well, it's not quite like that. Actually, what we're finding is that they're connected, for instance, with these through these fungal partners, and that actually they're in deep symbiosis and deep mutualisms with one another as a community. And that completely has changed the way evolutionary science is looking at things, by the way, um, if it's not cooperative, if there's some, of course, there's competition, you know, elk are competing for mates and all of that. But a larger theme that we're now uncovering are these positive interactions in the natural world, which are these mutualistic interactions. And interestingly, they have a lot to do with communication, because a, a fungal species has to signal to a tree that I'm I'm up for partnership. I'm a reliable partner. Can we partner? And then the tree is doing the same thing. So, you know, when you think about advertising, or you think now about how brands are, are starting to be more transparent and, and, and clients are starting to ask more and, and customers ask more and require more and interact more. That seems to me very much like more of a mutualism sort of thing where they have to communicate intent to each other. They have to communicate reputation. Like I'm, I'm going to be a fair actor here. I won't cheat you. And then um, they have to give each other something of, of equal value 
and otherwise the partnership falls apart. And, is, um, uh, but mutualisms make the world go round. Well, this is extraordinary because in you know we've been doing a lot of work on what are the drivers for successful brand in the 21st century. And in a major study that we did, we found that there were three major factors in terms of being a successful brand in this century. And you've just hit on all three, interestingly enough. Number one, <laughs> the notion of transparency uh, and, and mutual transparency. Number two, the, the notion of co-creation. So that, for example, there's no such thing as mm. a brand and a consumer. It's about co-creating uh, the brand as you go with an active user community. And then the third is making a substantive contribution to society. So these three notions are fundamental to being a successful and sustainable brand in this century. It's fascinating to me that your work has discovered the same wow. thing. Wow. Well, you know, it's really, it's really true. Thank you. That's phenomenal to hear that put in that way. And it tracks completely with, with biology because what, when these organisms hook up together, whether it's a bee and a flower, as you described the flower, you know, they're in a pollination mutualism. Um, they hook up together and actually enhance the place they live. I mean, that's the other thing is that, you know, that third part where you're, where, where the entity together, that is what we once called consumer and brand are now working together to make a better world. Um, that, that to me is one of the most hopeful and optimistic things. And I, you know, as a person who tracks the environmental stuff, I'm, I could be very pessimistic, but boy, I, I'm going to think about what you just said and therefore choose to be optimistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do have a specific question for you. I've been wanting to ask for a long time. Mm -hmm. In my early days studying biology, I was very fascinated by insects because, like <laughs> us, they are highly organized social mm. um, creatures. Yes. And you were talking about cities, and I always thought to myself the distinction between man-made versus natural was a artificial or specious distinction because if a city is not natural because it's man-made, a termite mound should be classified as not natural, and an ant colony mm. and a beehive the same because they are vast feats of engineering That's and right. their cities basically with yep. many many citizens and residents ants even do things like agriculture you know by oh, um, harvesting aphids and are there, are there things we can learn about cities and municipalities from let's say insect colonies oh, and termite mounds oh certainly you're absolutely right. If, you know, size-wise, you know, a termite mound, say in Africa, those really big termite mounds are taller, taller than six feet. You know, they're, they've got populations the size of New York City, you know. Now, what's really interesting about this, that's those structures is that um, they are artifacts, but they are natural. See, they, that, that's your premise that, you know, and, and I think this is one of the reasons we're finally coming around to our true nature now is that we've convinced ourselves this lonely, lonely myth that we are not nature. And of course we are. So, so one of the breakthroughs is thinking this house that I'm sitting in, the car, everything is natural because it's an artifact, just like that termite mount is an artifact made by a biological being. The only question is whether it's adaptive, meaning good for life, or maladaptive. So is the car maladaptive to us? Well, if it's, if it's bleeding toxins, yeah, it is. It's not good for life, right? 
so so then when then when you start to think oh yeah that termite mound let's see you know in africa they those termite mounds are really hot in the sun and then they get cold at night but they keep their temperature at about 81 degrees fahrenheit which is perfect for the fungus they're farming down below um they are the agricultural ones and how do they do that well, they've got these amazing ventilation systems in, you know, the mound is made of, of dirt and saliva. And, and it's, it's riddled with tubular kind of porous structure, right? These channels. And the channels, people are now, people have put those in MRI machines, slice by slice by slice, and gone, wow, these channels are amazing ventilation systems. And there's actually a whole group of architects and engineers who are trying to mimic that in the walls by putting channels maybe in the walls of buildings to do the same kind of ventilation. But the, there's a, there's a guy, um, Scott Turner, who calls, he has a book called, um, and say this carefully, The Extended Organism. And the extended organism, uh, what he means by that is that the termite mound the beehive, they are extensions of the organism's physiology. They are, they are like the lung, the ventilation, the lung, and the thermoregulation device. They create their own physiology outside their bodies, right? And so if you start to then think, oh, our buildings are our extended physiology, and so they should be good for life, right? And then the whole city is a larger home space and so why you know it's it's funny because you're finally getting the wellness movement it's got wellness which is a new drive in green building to do really well built well certification meaning it's it's good good for human beings air quality is good you know you've got lots of daylight it's it's healthy for humans but then when you walk outside you know is it healthy out there so at some point we've got to we're starting to grok this idea that what we make is going to affect our bodies and our psyches and that it should be as good for us as a nest robin's nest is or as a termite mound is you know if you've got a if you've got a robin and they get toxic fibers to make their nest eventually the propensity to do that will be edited out because it's not good for life. <laughs> and so eventually, right, uh, our toxins, I think we're realizing, and that's why people are turning to biomimicry, right? They're going, wait a minute, there's, like you said, there's got to be a better way. I think because we realize we can't, you know, you can't live in Beijing, right? You can't really live happily there. And um, so we're getting that. And then we're, and then we're kind of turning and going, wait a minute, we're part of this whole thing. I mean, really, our true nature is this. And, and not only can we build in those ways and build our cities in those ways that are healthy and that produce, you know, you can make a building that produces, the Bank of America building produces air that's three times cleaner than what comes in, right? So you can, right, you can do that. Um, or you can use CO2 sequestering concrete and, and start to turn climate change around. Um, so there's these, these ways that, that we're now, the technologies are there, but when do we change the way we see ourselves and what our job is 
And if our job is to fit in on the planet, right, then we, and I think we're starting and you see businesses wanting to treat each other well and their employees well and their customers, former customers well, and suddenly they want to treat the places they work well and their supply chain farms well. And that's a good tendency. <laughs> that's going to keep us, that's going to keep us from extinction. Absolutely. And, and there's a phrase you just used that I want to serve back to you because it's really quite extraordinary and quite fundamental, which is returning to our true nature. Because uh, yes. it contains so much returning to our true nature, first of all, to embrace That's right. that nature is ours yeah. and that we are, we also yeah. belong to nature. We are nature. But also uh, returning right. to our true um, state of being and also our true knowledge that we have at our, our disposal, yeah. our true nature. It's, it's an extraordinary yeah. thought, the, the notion of returning to our true nature. And maybe that should, you know, sort of all of us yeah. listening to this, we should sort of help power the movement by having that as in the forefront of our minds. And the other two, I can't help it, yes. I'm an advertising guy, so I'm going to give you two more headlines, and almost like uh, I could imagine okay. you writing future books, you know, and um, one of them is, is really the notion of uh, right under our noses. Uh, because mm. I really think your next <laughs> book, which is a companion or, or yeah. a sequel to this one, is about right under our noses, how this has always, it's been there all along. It's been around us yeah. and near us and beneath us and above us. And it's oh my God, extraordinary yeah. um, what you've mentioned on this call. We could really go on for hours. I'm going to, to sort of yeah. close on one last question. Is there any place we can go other than your wonderful book, Biomimicry, to learn more about this particular science? Oh, well, yeah, about about well, about biomimicry in general, and you'll find lots of things about cooperation and network biology in there. Um, we are biomimicry 3.8 is our consultancy. That's biomimicry.net. But then we also have a nonprofit, and that's biomimicry.org. And within there, there's a giant, beautiful, beautiful database where you can type in a function like, how does nature communicate? How does nature filter salt out of water? Whatever, whatever it is. And up will come biological um, examples. And it's really fun. You can lose yourself in there. And also find a lot of case studies, too, like I was talking about earlier. But you can find the biological we're trying to organize the world's biology by function, by design and engineering and management functions. Um, nobody's done that. Um, and it's really fun. So that's where to, that's where to go to get started. Um, the biomimicry.org, biomimicry.net, and then asknature.org. Amazing. Amazing. Janine, thank you so much. And once again, is, is this is Janine Benyus we've been talking to, and her book is called Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. So that was Janine, uh, the amazing Janine Benyus. And, and I mean it when I say that I think paying attention to and working with folks like Janine who give us access to the exponentially amazing laboratory of discoveries and innovations and successful innovations in the world of nature is essentially going to save our planet. Yeah. Um, everything from, you know, um, how do we keep our 
large office and and hotel buildings. The temperatures regulated to how do we prevent bacteria from forming on the surfaces of you know hospital walls mm-hmm. and 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 tables to um, how do we communicate uh, more efficiently uh, across teams and offices? How do we collaborate as organizations? What are some of the ways in which we can truly be sustainable and recycle every um, resource in our system, just as a forest does? A forest is, is uses every bit of um, its its resources exactly, and creates uh, an ecosystem that can survive for thousands and thousands of years, if not potentially millions of years. So there are secrets to unlock, and she's pointing the way mm-hmm. to them. I think it's extraordinary what um, she is indicating. And um, I hope uh, personally to, to do some work with uh, Janine in the future. But uh, I think everybody really should read the book, Biomimicry. Exactly. And be inspired by nature and start to read up more on it, st- start to talk to scientists, biologists, natural scientists. Um, on a more frequent basis. Yeah. It's it's crazy how she wrote it in 1996. And it's still yeah. so relevant today. Yeah, more than 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And she's updated the book, obviously. And she and her cadres are now working with industry, with architects, with urban planners, you with name industrial it. designers, <laughs> etc. I think she should start working with people in our our field of communications and marketing and Hundred uh, percent. Yeah, and see where that uh, that takes us. So really, I mean, she's a woman on a mission, and it's a mission that I think we should all pay some attention to. So um, yes, everyone, go to Amazon.com, order your book, your copy of Biomimicry. Ship it. It's um, <laughs> it'll be there the next day. I'm told. Yeah. And, a drone will fly it in. I'm sure. Yeah, and uh, there are all these different chapters. She's such a good writer as well. It's so clear. Oh, she's so it's, eloquent. Um, the amount of knowledge information that she can convey in a short space of time and how entertaining these stories are. You know, she does um, she does a great service, you know, by not only presenting this knowledge, but making it actually really easy for an intelligent lay reader to um, take it in. Yeah, like I failed biology in grade 11, but I, I got most of the stuff <laughs> in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all the time that we have today. But thank you for lending your ears. I'm Nevin Ryan. And I'm Wan Yoon. And we'll catch you next time on the next Force You Hear. You've been listening to the next Force You Hear with Wan Yoon.